Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Next year will mark 180 years since the British Royal Navy arrived at Possession Point and laid claim to a small stake of Hong Kong Island. Four years ago, I joined two history enthusiasts who headed along to the park on Possession Street that marks the spot of that first foray onto Hong Kong Island when the flag was hoisted. So, in the second half of the programme, I'll be playing some of that interview again to mark the anniversary on the 25th of January. But first, it's interesting to think that with one laptop and a voice recorder, a radio producer can create podcasts and radio items in a very small space, just like I do with Hong Kong Heritage. Over the years, British Forces Broadcasting Service, or BFBS, have used mobile studios in containers that have travelled wherever the British forces go. Peter King, who you can hear on Radio 3 on weekday evenings with his two programmes, Peter King and Pete's Private Collection, were Worked with BFBS here and in Cyprus and the Falkland Islands. Here he talks about his love of radio, which started early, and his career in radio since the mid-1980s. How I got into radio, my goodness, well, I'll try and keep it as short as I can. Um, when I was a kid, I used to... You remember the shirts you could buy with the, with the sort of clear plastic front? So when I was about three years old, I used to pretend to read the news behind this little box. Then the next thing was um, using a baby alarm to make my family listen to me broadcasting out of my bedroom. But my first show, believe it or not, was in 1971. I was 15 and a half. And I went to RAF Hereford as, a, as an apprentice, and, and that's where I started my first show. <laughs> I was known as Pete of A-Flight, believe it or not. My theme tune was 633 Squadron by Ron Goodwin. What attracted you to radio? I don't really know, because I'm not an outgoing person. I'm actually quite a shy person. I've got a very small group of friends, but they're all good friends. You know, I love the community spirit of Sai Kung, for example. Uh, so I don't really know what got me into radio. I love music. I come from a music uh, family. But why I chose radio, I really don't know. I did love uh, pirate radio. And, of course, now we're in an era where radio's I wouldn't say it's past its prime. That's not true. But radio had a great peak sort of in the 60s and 70s and then the 80s and 90s. So it's tail off to other means of technology now, which is what we have. And uh, when you first start off in Hong Kong, who was that with? Well, I first came to Hong Kong with RTHK, but I actually came with a company called Julianas to work as the head DJ for a place called Hot Gossip on Canton Road. And they said, oh, you know, the, the management there was Heinz and Barbara Grube. Uh, they're terrible people. You'll probably stay there for a month if you're lucky, by which time I'll find you somewhere else to go. This is out of Singapore. As it turned out, I stayed a year with Hot Gossip and then was doing the overnights here when Tony Baines used to be head of Radio 3 back in the day and Alan Murphy and people like that. So what year are we talking? Talking 85. What did the overnights involve? The overnights was a great training ground for new presenters, I think. And I, I still reckon it is a great idea to put, you know, young people particularly, because you can get away with certain things. I used to do, if I remember correctly, it was two till six. And you basically played music, the weather came off a teleprinter, you made up a few stories and away you went. And of course back in those days English radio was a lot more popular so you actually, you actually had a good listenership uh, overnight. So you can make all the mistakes that you probably couldn't get away with in the morning. <laughs> so, so.
so when you say overnight shift, you were on for several hours. Yeah, it was uh, it was two till six, and then if I'm not mistaken, I think weekends were two till seven. At seven o'clock, the BBC World News came on, and then Radio Three and Radio Four used to split. And back in those days, Sunday morning, on Radio Four was Ken Scott, who was then head of English Radio, and we're going back eighty-five, sort of eighty-six time. And what did Ken Scott do? It's interesting you ask that question because back in in those days, accents were you know, were fairly neutral, I would say. And, and coming from Derbyshire. Ken Scott called me into his office one day. He said, "You know, my boy. He said, if you want to improve your voice, don't say public, say public around your use." <laughs> and it was all really that, you know. And back in those days, of course, being from Derbyshire, which is where I'm originally, um, I was constantly monitoring myself uh, to to try and improve my accent, like. <laughs> <laughs> so you did the overnight shifts, mm. and um, you would then go on to work for British Forces Radio, BFBS. I got an offer from Mark Tiley, who was in BFBS Hong Kong at the time. He'd gone to Cyprus, and uh, he asked me, do you fancy coming over to work for us in Cyprus? So I went to, to Cyprus, and then the Falklands, and then Singapore, and then eventually back here in uh, 95. The Falklands? Yeah, I've done the Falklands. It's down there, not during the war, of course, but uh, again, a fascinating experience. Uh, British Forces Radio have this system, and in fact, I, when I came back here in 95, it was to work for BFBS. I was doing the breakfast show uh, and doing the news at night, so you could be two different people, because RTHK thought that the audience on BFBS didn't listen to the you know fuddy duddies on Radio Three, so it was it was really good fun. <laughs> <laughs> With B BFBS, mm. you, you did the um, breakfast show. So what did that involve? Breakfast show uh, that was six till nine, just basically happy-go-lucky stuff. I interviewed some great people over the time. Uh, everybody from Kevin Bloody Wilson from Australia to uh, to Hamadinis and, and people like that who were passing through town. It really involved very much a sort of army forces family kind of presentation and if we let the old expletive slip out and a member of the public complained then BFBS would turn around and say well it's actually not for you you not you know this is for the armed forces so if you listen you're just a guest so you know whatever you say doesn't count and that's how BFBS got through and got away with what they did it was a great station to work for actually so you were involved really in, in producing or, or presenting programmes on BFBS right up until the handover in 1997? In fact, that's true, because uh, what happened was, was that as they were closing things down, they had the main base at, uh, at what was RAF Kong, and I did the last uh, live show from there. It was a Sunday morning. I went in and it looked the same as it always did, and it came out. It looked like the movies had come and taken this huge sort of theatrical stage away. And then when 97 came, what happened was we had to record the last uh, show because that was going to be broadcast from London because they were obviously stripping everything down. By this time, we were all at Tamar, uh, and they had w what they used to call a pod. It was basically a big container, and they've got a few of these things. They can stick them on a C-130 Hercules, send it around the world, drop it off somewhere. It contains a studio, record library, uh, transmitter, and, uh, and a transmitter tower, and a generator. So you've got an entire radio station in a container. <laughs> and, uh, and so consequently, the, the Sunday morning was the last one, uh, the last live show which I did there. And of course, as we know, you know, um, I think it was a Tuesday, 97, 30th of June was a Tuesday. But anyway, whatever it was, I was um, actually in the Swagman Hotel in Manila listening to the handover and watching it on the telly. Uh, so I actually got the 30th of June stamp on my passport <laughs> just to get out. So that's you with British Forces Radio. Mm. Then do you return to RTHK? 
well, I was doing British Forces breakfast show, then I was doing the, the evening uh, news shift, and then I left uh, 97. I went to Porto Galera, lived there for a while, went back to the UK eventually, which was around November of that year. Got a great job at a, a radio station called Radio 106, which became Century 106, big regional radio station. But to be honest with you, away from the UK, it was like having a colour telly for 16 years and going back and being given a black and white one. I can't really explain it. I don't want to be a UK knocker as such, but my hometown, a very uh, depressed town in Derbyshire, uh, is even worse now. The, the crime rate is through the roof. You wouldn't walk through the town at night, so the freedom's already gone. I didn't like the weather anyway. Uh, and TV's not that good over there these days, so there wasn't really much to hang around for. Did a lot of reminiscing, I bought a car, went did a lot of walks me and my dad did in Derbyshire and stuff like that, but there was nothing there. I sold up, went to live in Porto Galera for a year and a half, and I came back here in mid-2000, thanks to Tom Brown in the newsroom. How do you feel when you're in the studio? I feel that it's a totally different world. Whatever happens outside the studio does not come into the studio. It's a, it, it's a very hard thing to explain. Um, and because of that, because I'm so focused on what's going on, you know, I do tend to, I might sound a little bit calm on the radio, but behind the scenes, if things are falling apart, you know, I can actually fall apart with them, to be honest. But a microphone goes on and you wouldn't even know what's going on, to be yes. honest with you. No, I can, uh, I can uh, understand that. And that's certainly how you sound. Yesterday got an email to play some stuff from Oz. So we played The Crawl yesterday and I promised an akadaka tonight and there you have it. ACDC on three. Three songs before the news at nine, hopefully. That is one of them, a big hit for the Tramps course way, way back in the 70s. Tita Turner still going strong last time I checked. On this particular occasion, she made this version around about 93. Disco Inferno. Now, while I've been looking through the archives for this series, I came mm. across an excellent uh, series you did for a few years called Scrapbook. Oh, yeah, the, the Hong Kong Scrapbook. That was uh, that was a story in itself, really. Uh, I can't remember who started it. I think Keith J started it off, and Keith got a little bored with it after a while. We had a lady here called Susan Kay, and she used to go down to the South China, and she used to write down uh, local events uh, on a certain day, a certain year. And, and so basically the Hong Kong scrapbook was about a month of a certain year. So it could be June, for example, of June of uh, 68 or whatever. Uh, but the interesting thing about that was that unbeknown to a lot of people in the record libraries that then was, on top of all the shelves are all these cardboard boxes full of all this archive material, things like the year-enders, uh, things like uh, Charles Wetherill swimming the harbour for charity, uh, the riots, of course, and various uh, people reporting on the riots from down there. And all this material was just there. It was just a matter of sitting down and working out what the dates were, which was an incredibly difficult job. So a one-hour show could easily be five or six hours just putting 
the material together. I'm surprised they've still got them in the library, actually. Had my voice broken then, I can't remember. <laughs> now tell me about Charles Weatherall. Charlie, well, Geoffrey Bonsall was his real name. He worked on Radio 4 as Charles Weatherall. Lovely old guy. Again, you know, so going back to the, the old days of RTHK, English media wasn't so fragmented. Yeah, I knew Geoffrey Bonsall. I didn't know Charles Weatherall. And it's interesting that he had this different name for broadcasting. Well, he did. And in fact, one or two other people were known by different names, particularly part-timers. If you look at some of the old school back in those days, I mean, Ralph Pigston, for example, you know, was, was massive here. Uh, people like myself and Steve James and one or two others, we still do Ralph Pigston. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> well, thank you for calling, you know, and the ghost of Ralph is still in this building, actually, it really is. It's a funny old bloke, yeah. So you knew, as you say, Charles, Ralph, who, who were some of the other people that you were crossing over with when you, when you were first joining in the mid-80s? Well, of course, I've mentioned Ken Scott, Ken ran uh, English Radio at the time. There would have been Tony Baines was head of Radio 3. And a great boss, because what happened was, was that if, for example, you couldn't get in, you don't have transport as it is today, you know, I used to live back in cycling, even in those days, he would do your show. He would actually come in and do your show, and, and the shame of your boss coming to do your radio show was something that spurred you all the time to, to actually make sure he didn't make any mistakes. He led by example. I think it's a great way to go, particularly in a creative industry. But in terms of radio itself, I mean, when you were, you, you start off with the, the overnight shift to sort of mm. cut your teeth a bit, but um, what sort of evening shows have you had? I know you in more recent years right. with, with your seven to nine slot. Sure, sure. Well, I've been through, done everything, actually. I, I've done Hong Kong Today. I did Hong Kong Today for about two months. I think I've done every show, quite honestly, <laughs> at some point. Phil Whelan's show, that used to be nine till one, took it over from Keith. Then Steve James and I did our Pete and Steve thing. That started off in the mornings, went off into the afternoons. I don't even know how we got away with most of what we did, to be honest with you. I've done the afternoons as well, three to six. I think Newswrap, actually, is the only show I haven't done, the one that you do, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I haven't done Newswrap. It's the only one I haven't done. Now, what, you have various things like Pete's private collection. Yeah. Pete's something or the Pete's private collection, Pete's Quiet Night in, Pete's Christmas collection or whatever. And then when I did the lunchtime show, which is what Noreen does now, the one to three show, it was Pete's packed lunch. <laughs> <laughs> With Pete's private collection, I mean, what do you think is the key to making the listener feel that they're personally listening to you? Well, it's an interesting show because there's plenty of me between Monday to Friday and I... Th as I call it, it's the only show on the radio that lets the music do the talking. In this day and age, if you want to know music and you sound hound or Shazam, you point it to the speaker and it will tell you what it is. And of course, you could have me doing that for you as well. But I like to let the music on this one hour show, uh, I like to let it develop and go into different genres and different styles. And I feel that if you preempt the music by telling people, oh, it's jazz. And they say, oh, I don't like jazz. But if you play them a piece of music and then you tell them it's jazz, then they realise that they just listened to a piece of music they liked, but they thought they didn't like the genre. So I like to let music stand up for itself in that show. You mentioned that you interviewed Hammond Innes, um, mm. so the, the author, he wrote mm. thrillers. He did. Uh, in actual fact, I, I told Little Porky Pie there, I actually interviewed Hammond Innes in the Falklands. He'd come down to research a book. Uh, back in 1990 
but if you go through the list of people I've interviewed, uh, everybody from Lee Kuan Yew to over oh, the years, you know, uh -huh. in Singapore, uh, Margot Hemingway, who had a, a huge impact on me at the time, uh, a whole bunch of people, David Soule, Julia Nixon, who was his wife at the time, uh, all kinds of people. And I love interviews because you can get the best out of people, whether they're selling their book or they're selling a recipe or whatever it is, they're always selling something if you're doing an interview, generally speaking. Um, and I just love to see that side of people and get that side of people out to an audience. If you have a certain empathy to the people you're interviewing, I believe that carries over. And I think that the first thing an interviewee has to do is to trust you. My longtime Radio 3 colleague, Peter King, there. You can hear Peter King on weekday evenings between 7pm and 9pm with Peter King and Pete's private collection. On the 25th of January, 1841, the British Royal Navy arrived on Hong Kong Island and a small group held a ceremony on what became known as Possession Point at 8.15am. Four years ago... I also went to Possession Point, which is now in a park in Shengwan, where I joined Robert Neald, the author of two books on China's historic treaty ports, and his friend, photographer Nick Kitto, to talk about what happened on that morning. We're standing opposite the Shengwan Municipal Services Building, which uh, we believe is roughly where they would have landed back in 1841, before progressing up to possession what became known as possession point it's quite incredible standing here we've got western market the the renovated one with all the uh, material shops inside behind us um, and ahead we've got shengwan cook food center and i'm standing here with <laughs> nick and robert in the rain it's, it's quite incredible seeing this cross-section of streets people rushing off it it's commuter time and, and this idea that this is where the british would have first landed in hong kong yeah it would have been commuter time back then as well because <laughs> We suspect, we, we believe that the British would have landed where there was a little pier rather than splashing through the waves up the beach. There was a small pier, according to old maps, round about where we are now. Uh, Queen's Road, what, what became Queen's Road, was the nearest thing to the coast, so we're probably in the sea where we are now. Uh, but there was a small pier for ferry services across to the Kowloon Peninsula, so there would have been rush hour traffic then, maybe fewer people. So we've just walked up bottom strand uh, to get a little bit out of the rain as well but uh, really you should have been here on Monday morning shouldn't you Robert? Guilty as charged we should have been here on Monday morning but with the temperature at 3.5 where I was um, we decided uh, we're very keen but maybe not quite that keen so we're here today with a balmy temperature of 11. So do you think the Victorians were made of sterner stuff? Oh good god yes of course <laughs> <laughs> this wouldn't have put them off for a moment. <laughs> do we know exactly what the date was? Yes Yes, we do. It was definitely the 25th, uh, which was a Monday. And that came after the Convention of Twenpi, which was signed on the 20th of January. That was the treaty which was supposed to bring the first opium war to an end. And everyone was very happy. They signed Twenpi just up the Pearl River on the 20th of January. Uh, Captain Belcher wrote this book, um, uh, published in 1843, and he was one of the party who came ashore. I'll just read a little bit from his book. On the 26th, we were directed to proceed to Hong Kong and commence its survey. 
We landed on Monday the 26th at 15 minutes past eight. In fact, Monday was the 25th in that year, so that's a, a, a misprint in his book. And being the bona fide first possessors, Her Majesty's health was drunk with three cheers on Possession Mount. And Possession Mount is where we'll be going uh, in a moment. On the 26th, he says, implying the following day, the squadron arrived. The Marines were landed, uh, the Union Jack was hoisted, and formal possession taken of the island by Commodore Sir John Bremer. Now you say that the, the treaty was signed. Can you give me a, a, a description of what had ensued before Britain took possession of Hong sure. Kong Island? By 1839, the trading conditions in Canton had become intolerable. Commissioner Lin was on the warpath and he'd uh, taken all the opium and destroyed it. Uh, life was impossible for British merchants in Canton in 1839, so they all had to jump on their boats and leave. They tried to go to Macau, uh, but Macau, always having this sort of precarious relationship with China, said, oh, please, please don't come here. Uh, we sympathize, but not that much, so please can you go somewhere else? There was nowhere else to go, basically, so uh, the British fleet of, I don't know, 40, 50 vessels made its way to Hong Kong Harbor, the, the western end of Hong Kong Harbor. Uh, and there they were, just pending developments, waiting to see what was going to happen. So in early 1841, were they just waiting in their ships? No, I believe they, they were using Hong Kong Island quite a lot. I mean, just if for nothing else, for provisioning. Uh, water was essential. There was a good waterfall in, in the western area. And so they were coming ashore quite regularly uh, to exercise, to get provisions. So what, the fishermen were selling them stuff? Or? Yeah, I believe uh, the, all the farmers and the fishermen were selling provisions and, um, and uh, they were probably doing some of their own agriculture as well. We walked from Bonham Strand up Possession Street, as it's now called, and we're now in Hollywood Road Park, which is where we believe um, the first people who landed on the 25th of January would have come, because they'd have come to that little pier, they'd have gone onto the beach, and they'd have seen this little rise. Of course, the whole of Hong Kong Island is a big rise, but this is a, a little sort of rocky knoll, and I, I imagine they'd have said, well, let's go up there and have a look. So I believe they'd have come up to this place. There's a, there's a tree that's probably old enough to have seen them, a big banyan tree over there, uh, and, a, and a rocky outcrop. And if we look just uh, behind us towards the, the harbor, it's a very steep drop. So this is, um, we think, the place. So they, they would have come up just to, uh, have a better look at the place. So as Nick described, Captain Belcher came on land. Was that with a small party? It was with a small party, just to have a look. Um, it was sensible to come here before the day of official possession, which was the 26th of January. So they just came to have a look uh, where would be a good place to have the ceremony. Because Marines were landed, uh, it was quite a formal thing. But uh, initially just a handful of chaps came to, to scout it out. And then what happened? What sort of ceremony? Well, reading again from Belcher, the Marines were landed, the Union Jack hoisted, and formal possession taken by Commodore Sir John Bremer, accompanied by the other officers of the squadron, under a feu de joie from the Marines, which is a sort of happy firing, bang, 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 and a royal salute from the ships of war. But an interesting, the next little paragraph, on the Kowloon Peninsula were, situ were situated two batteries, uh, meaning uh, gun batteries, Chinese ones, which might have commanded the anchorage, but which appeared at present to be but thinly manned. These received due notice to withdraw their men and guns as part of the late treaty. Isn't that sort of nicely superior? You chaps, off you go, now run along. We don't want guns pointing at us, thank you very much. But they're on Kowloon's side. 
yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that didn't happen for a few years. It didn't happen for a few years. But I think the treaty said that, that the British shouldn't be, um, or the Convention of Trent Peace said the British shouldn't be threatened. Uh, and they did feel threatened by these undermanned gun batteries pointing at them. So you have a small group of men coming from these ships of uh, the Royal Navy um, on to up to the mound to first have a scout and then hold a formal ceremony. So what did they do, erect a flag? or They, re they erected a flag and they drank Her Majesty's health, as, as we do every year, uh, with a little spot of uh, Malmsey, probably. I have port in here. <laughs> and it would have probably been three cheers for Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray, hip, hip, hooray. And then glug, glug, glug. And it's very a very nice. nice way to spend the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so you're about to have a bit of a nip of port. How, yeah. how civilised. Yeah. I think this is 1994 vintage, but... Um... <laughs> Enjoy. So you've got your British flag here. Yes. Um, and uh, now, in terms of what actually ensued back in London, despite the fact that these people had taken possession of a, of a piece of land for yep. Queen Victoria, yep. uh, both people in Parliament were less than impressed. They, they were less than impressed. Back in London, of course, it was about three months away to get a message there and another, another three months to get the reply. So back in London, it was a very long way away. So Captain Elliot was uh, officially titled the Plenipotentiary, which is a wonderful title, which means he could do whatever he thought fit in the circumstances. Captain Elliot? He was in charge of the British efforts at that time. 1839, um, the British basically got pushed out of Canton. There was a little bit of fighting off the Kowloon Peninsula when uh, some British uh, troops or sailors, marines, went ashore to try and get provisions. There was a bit of roughing up and there was a few gunshots fired in, I think, about July 1839. But formal hostilities started in November 1839. But hostilities meant really just displays by the Royal Navy. We had the world's most powerful military force against a very uh, backward, we have to say, Chinese military uh, capability. Why did it take three years? Well, I think there was, seemed to be no particular hurry. The Navy went up the coast and had a few shots at Amoy and a few shots here and a few shots there. The only real fighting happened just before the treaty was signed in about July 1842 in a place called Chinkiang, which Nick and I have been to on the Yangtze River. Uh, the British were totally surprised because the Chinese there put up resistance and it took three days to, to capture the place. But most of the rest of the war wasn't really a war. There was no declaration of war because there were no channels through which a formal declaration could be made. China didn't have a foreign office. They certainly didn't welcome foreigners to Peking with letters. So there's no mechanism whereby a declaration of war could be made. So mainly it was displaced by the Royal Navy up and down the coast. Can you also describe the timeline? Uh, the Royal Navy arrives here with Captain Elliot, Captain Belcher, in January 1841. We mark Hong Kong as being from 1841, but the treaty is not signed till 18 months later. So what happens in the meantime? We mark Hong Kong actually as becoming a British colony in 1842. The 1841 Convention of Chuen Pi uh, was supposed to bring the hostilities to an end. Britain demanded either Hong Kong or Kowloon Peninsula. They didn't seem to mind which at the time. They had taken possession of Chusan, an island up the coast not far from Shanghai, as security. Uh, and then this convention in, in 1841, on the 20th of August, basically brought hostilities to an end. But then it turned out that the Chinese uh, were very upset about giving away anything at all. The British were very upset with Elliot for not, not getting enough 
So hostilities started again, and out came the Royal Navy again, up and down the coast, with a bit more effort this time, I suppose. And their intention was to get as close to Peking as possible. And they got up the Yangtze River, and um, as far as Nanking, and then the Treaty of Nanking was signed in August 1842. And that gave uh, Britain the colony of Hong Kong. Formally? Formally, yes. And Chu San, which was held as a security, was given back or handed back once all the uh, reparations had been paid. My thanks to Robert Neald, Nick Kitto and Peter King. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.